And what I found was that you would kind of get damp and you'd go back up and your sleeping bag would touch it, but then it would freeze and then it would go down and get damper. And you would slowly find all of your stuff would saturate uh, and it was impossible to dry it. I did get really severe frost nip on my toes. Again, you'd have this issue with it freezing and then you've got to try and jam your feet into frozen boots. Um, and you get a lot of chill blames, those kind of people call them screaming barfies, that kind of pain that you get in your toes and you, you warm them up. If anyone's ever had sleep paralysis, you, you get this feeling that someone's sitting on your chest and this sort of mortal fear of dread. And you'd see things, you'd see shadows outside the tent and you'd hear footsteps. Hello, my friends. Welcome to a new episode of McHugh Corner. What you just heard there was a few little snippets of the incredible conversation I had with Will Copestake, an award-winning adventurer. This man is nothing other than an absolute machine. He's explored the outdoors like no one else I know, both overseas and in Scotland, with his biggest adventure so far being solo circumnavigating Scotland by sea kayak, cycling and walking for an entire year, climbing 282 Munro Mountains, mostly in winter. He experienced massive highs, but even lower lows. And he talks about these trips and how they took a toll on his mental health, facing the likes of loneliness, extreme weather conditions and dealing with sleep paralysis. But he also shared the feeling of accomplishment, taking in the beautiful world that we live in and figuring out his true joy in life, which is being outdoors. This is such an interesting conversation and I implore you to go check out Will Copestake's Instagram at Will Copestake, which will give you a little visual of the insane footage that he got on his journeys to give you even more of a flavour of what life has truly been like for him. And without further ado, here's Will. Interesting thing about how we met was I was actually on a West Coast trip with my boyfriend and one of the days my boyfriend had actually planned to go kayaking around Elpool and Will was actually the instructor of the trip that day and on that trip Will was telling me how he got to be instructing different groups kayaking every single day and Will's had the most incredible story and I was mind blown by this. And basically, I just uh, wanted to speak to him today to get to talking about how somebody so young goes off on a path like that rather than like the conventional young person who is addicted to their phones. So I guess I wanted to, to start off by asking, how did it all come about for you? I, I remember reading something about how you were like 12 years old and then your dad was like, you need to go camping by yourself or something like that. And that's what started all your adventure. Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me. Um, the, You're very welcome. Yeah, I, I use that a lot as an example um, of, of one of many adventures as a child. Uh, yeah. my, my parents and, and my friend Circle when I was a kid were really good at sort of kicking us out and getting us to just do things outside. Um, my mum and dad had this sort of informal rule that if I wanted to play PlayStation or if I wanted to, the phones weren't really a thing then. It was all about PlayStation mm. and watching telly. Uh, if you wanted to do that, you had to do an hour outside first. Oh, really? And normally, that would escalate into more than an hour. Um, and it, it sort of loosely worked. Um, but yeah, that, that, that example that I used was a, a trip that, at the time, myself and two of my very close friends really were into, into Ray Mears at the time, which was that kind of bushcraft survivalism, uh, going right. out, exploring the forests and, and seeing what you can find, going on the beach, seeing what you can eat. Uh, and just just learning sort of basic survival skills. So funny, actually, because like I think kids actually love that sort of stuff. It's very exciting to kids. Yeah, and it, it's it's becoming popular now that there's a lot of sort of forest schools and, and sort of forest nurseries that are beginning to crop up with this idea. Um, and it, it's all kind of around that like sort of concept that you you learn a lot of fundamental skills by being outside. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
like for example if, if a child builds a dam in a river they're, they're having fun and they're building a dam but they're also learning a little bit about engineering and how, how water works and yeah and so how different true. materials work so it, it filters all the way through society which is, is fantastic so when you went out on this um trip was it far away from your house yeah well, like what was the situation with that so in the minds of a 12 year old we were at the edge of the earth um in, in reality <laughs> yeah. we were about a kilometer away uh and oh, we, right, we okay. felt very very alone um however i i suspect my mum and dad were watching us like a hawk with binoculars yeah um, it was literally across so i i live on the the seaside in Otherpool, um and and across the the shore on the far shore is, is much more remote and there's a bay there with some old abandoned boats and, and quite a nice place to camp uh my dad's my dad had sailed us across there and and sort of dropped us on this beach and, and our idea was we were going to gather wood we were going to build a shelter we were then going to go and, and find our food and, and, and forage through the forest and, and, and survive like sort of wild men. Um, and then with that success, come back sort of victorious survivalists. Um, now, of course, my, my friend's parents and my, my parents put in some, some safety nets. They, they gave yeah. us they gave us a bag with a tent uh, and they gave us a box, a cooler box full of food, which was not to be opened unless it was an emergency. Oh really? Um, They're quite strict with it then. Well, we 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 kind of told ourselves that they they kind of encouraged it, I think. Um, oh, but right, it, it, it had all the sort of vices in life, like bacon, and there was hot teas and all sorts of lovely lovely things to eat. Now, after the the first hour of being alone, we we sort of found our campsite and we gathered up some wood, um, and we we built quite a, quite a nice little sort of teepee, wooden and moss hut thing, like like you would see a kind of standard survival. Uh, groups build and we climbed that's aside impressive. yeah we, we were pretty happy with it actually yeah but, that's I mean, quite cool <laughs> in, in my mind it was a palace in, in reality it was probably pretty shabby um <laughs> but it's uh but yeah so we, we climbed inside and we, we put our sleeping bags down and then realized that right in the middle of it was an ant nest that we hadn't noticed uh, and <gasps> oh, so you go, no! no disaster um and so immediately went and just put up the tent and went right okay we, we've built a shelter we don't feel we need to sleep in it we'll get the tent up Mm-hmm. Um, then, then we sort of turned out and we went right. We're going to go down to the beach and we're going to find some some seafood. There, there might be mussels about. There might be limpets. Uh, we'll look for mushrooms in the forest. Um, we'll mushrooms, see, we'll see my god, <laughs> could have gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got like five or six different mushrooms that, since a young age, I've been fairly confident at. Um, the <laughs> yeah. the rest I kind of avoid because there's death and hallucinogenics <laughs> and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you might have a really good time, a really bad time if you get it wrong. <laughs> Um, yeah. now after that kind of first hour we we found I think a collection of limpets which are these sort of cone-shaped shells you see on the rocks um, and that was basically it there really wasn't much in the bay um, and you can cook them but they, they kind of taste like an old shoe um, oh, they're not no. particularly good uh, and so we, we tried getting a fire going we tried smoking them and um, we sort of ate them and they weren't great and so we opened up the cool box and got the bacon out uh, yeah <laughs> and so it completely failed like the, the first two to at least you tried at least you tried yeah. uh, and so yeah we, we'd been in our in our, our minds pretty unsuccessful at this point so we decided our stuff it we're going to go explore the river behind the campsite uh, and mm-hmm. we went we went up the river uh, and went swimming um now 12-year-old me's logic was to have my spare clothes on top of my normal clothes because I was cold uh, and then come back and there was no clothes to, to wear. So, um, Where did they go? Well, because I got them both wet. I was wearing both sets of clothes oh, and I jumped in the river and it was just I not, not thinking about it. Um, <laughs> so it was a massive failure, really? A complete failure. <laughs> Absolutely nothing about the trip that we'd set out to do was was 
as planned at all. But um, it's good though. It's good, like you know, starting off with that, and then you can kind of almost learn the next time, and then you you kind of build this almost um, like desire to do it again, but in a better way. I'm, I'm assuming yeah, that's how yeah, it went. exactly. So although the adventure completely went in a tangent to what was planned, we we did come back feeling like we'd had an amazing adventure, um, yeah. and, and it, it it achieved the boxes we wanted to tick, but not in the in the same sort of folder that we thought it was going to be in. Mm. Um, and we learned loads, um, which was ki- kind of the point, I suppose, for what our parents wanted to put us out there for. Yeah. From then, like, to now, you've obviously done so many different things, and you you did it quite a lot when you were in university, is that right? Yeah, so I, I enrolled in a, a degree in environmental science and outdoor education. Um, the, the degree primarily was an environmental science degree, and they tacked on a, uh, a subject a semester in, in an outdoor education field, which was okay. heavily weighted at getting your summer mountain leadership qualification. Now, for us in, in that group, the environmental science group at uni was probably about 200 students or so. Mm-hmm. But the, the outdoor education group was this kind of ragtag group of, it's, it went down to 13 in the end. I think it started about sort of 15 or 16 of us. Uh, all of us, similar upbringings, all of us keen mm-hmm. to get outdoors uh, and, and a little bit wild. And and between that group, we started doing lots of adventures around the local mountains. Um, I, I made a very good friend called Remy McMurtry, uh, who, who was a similar sort of level to myself uh, and we we then started planning our, our first real what we, we considered a proper expedition um remy had a lot of experience he, he'd um he'd done a lot of stuff living in the alps he, he was living in germany most of his life mm-hmm. uh, and I, i'd gained a fair bit of experience from trekking through new zealand in, in a gap year before university mm-hmm. uh, and so we, is that how you had is that how you had so much time to go places because you had a gap year yeah, the gap, the gap year, it, it kind of put life on pause for a bit. So I'd worked as a lifeguard on the local dolphin watching boat through my last years of high school and saved up enough money to, to be able to sort of go overseas. Uh, and the idea was I went out to New Zealand for 10 months and, and it really without a plan, to be honest. Right. Um, the idea to kind of hitchhike around and get some, get some work here and there and just kind of see the world, uh, having never really been overseas, uh, let alone sort of on my own. And the that that developed into then trying to complete all the great walks of New Zealand, um, mm. and I got really into that whole trekking scene and and that that sort of trekking backpacker lifestyle. And is that who you um, is that Remy that you went on that backpacking? That was all on my own. Um, oh, and right. so that okay, that right. kind of gave a foundation of, of backpacking experience. That, uh, and Remy's similarly, it was in in sort of Germany in the French Alps doing doing sort of French backpacking. And so at the level we'd, we'd grown from, from that sort of time going out as a kid in the forest, we'd then, through through our own sort of teenage years, grown experience with doing hiking and, and camp, camping and backpacking, but more on sort of formalised trails. So so you're kind of on on tracks, your navigation's not particularly difficult, you're, you're learning mm. the backpacking foundation step by step. Um, and so that's the sort of next step we'd, we'd come up to. So is that kind of a, 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 almost like an essential thing for you to do when you're on that sort of course is to go out there and do like those the, kind of adventures sort of thing? Yeah, the, co- the course in, in the university asked you, they, they wanted you to try and complete 40 mountains before your assessment, which is in your, your third year. And really? So they, and that was kind of a bare minimum. And so you're, you're encouraged to go out um, 
in bad weather uh, and, and bad cloud and, and think about your risk assessment and how you, you can manage that and learn how to deal with weather and, and the conditions that you get in Scotland. Um, I'm sure we all know we've all been up in mountains or out in Scotland and the rain has come down. Um, yeah. It rains a lot. Oh, my and God. Uh, I was going to ask you. So you're saying 40 um, mountains is like a minimum. Um, and then I guess you decided to just go off and do all of them. Yeah, so, so that actually came later. Um, oh, did the, it? The, the big, yeah, the big expedition that we we did at university was to to walk across Iceland, which which Remy and myself did in a summer holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we had virtually no money. I read so. about that, and I was like, I was going to ask you, like, how on earth did do you do a trip like that on such a low budget? And like, what where did the money come from? Did you like have to stop and work for a bit? So we. We managed to save a little bit of money through summer work the the year before at university, um, mm. and then that that sort of bought mostly bought kit. To be honest, we we bought jackets and 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 the backpacks and the camping equipment that we needed. The to actually fund the trip itself for, for a lot of it, we we hiked up the mountain behind Stirling University uh, called Demiat. All right. Um, now it's a, it's a small mountain. It's maybe 400, 400 meters, but it's one of the most popular mountains in in Scotland. It's it's a hugely trafficked mountain. Okay. And and we would carry up there ten liters of water each. We would spend the day revising and selling cups of tea to people, with an idea that you would then fundraise for funding this trip. And and you could make probably sort of eighty ninety pounds a day between the two of you. So it was it was quite good way of earning money and also training because you're carrying water up and down a hill. Every, yeah, every other day. and it's and it's something that everybody always wants at the top of a hill. Yeah, it's like exactly. a nice nice warm drink. Yeah. So I think it's a. Uh... A great initiative to like go up there and like be selling that it's such a clever idea yeah did, was, that, was that enough money to to fund like your whole trip or so the whole trip was roughly on a six seven hundred pound budget uh for three okay for, for three months um and that that was each okay. um I, I would i would realistically say it was probably about 1500 overall if you factor in equipment and and flights and that sort of stuff yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but once in the country we had sort of six or seven hundred pounds each um now, the nature of the trip we did, we were there for three months. We, we wanted to hike from the south to the north, straight across the centre of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because of that, we, we, we planned to camp almost entirely. Uh, and we were going out into these wild areas away from the roads and, and, and wild camping. And the, the food we were eating, because we were students, was pretty basic. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we had managed to, to secure a, a sort of relationship with a freeze-dried company that had given us a, a small discount. Oh, really? on, on freeze-dried food, which is a company called Expedition Foods, which reduced a bit of the budget for the actual trekking meals. Mm. And then for the rest of it, we basically ate pasta and smashed potato and budgeted stuff, basically. Did you find that it was like, did you get enough nutrition then, or we, did you find yourself flagging quite a lot? Nutrition, we, we thought about it quite hard. So we, we were balancing our carbohydrates, proteins, fats. Um, I, I'd taken these sort of creatine pills for the actual trip, which were awful. Um, oh, we, really? we, had a, we had a slight also sort of spanner in the works in remy my, my friend is, is anaphylactic allergic to eggs dairy and nuts and so that reduces oh. hugely what you can eat as a trail meal yeah um, now I, I felt pretty tough eating uh kind of cheese on my vita cakes as my lunch um remy to his credit ate just lumps of neat lard on my vita cakes which is beyond Ooh. disgusting Lumps um, of lard. Yeah, so he would kind of like <laughs> he, he would sort of sort of grimace this down as his, his lunch on the on the trip, and then and we'd have we'd have a flapjack as pudding, and that was always kind of the the reward for the pain, I suppose. 
um, which yeah, he's a tough cookie that one. But that's the um, thing as well. Like I always think to myself, I mean, I've got literally no kind of relation to this, but like the most thing I've done is like a Monroe. And I'm always thinking to myself, like, I can't wait for my lunch at the top. Like, I can't wait for, like, a really nice sandwich or a really, like, just something really tasty. But to think about doing all of that effort and then having a lump of lard on a cracker. Yeah. It's like, um, oh, my God, that's awful. There's a, there's a saying that says exercise is the best seasoning, which is sort of true. I reckon if you if you were to have, like, a list of meals you eat on a big expedition and cook them in a house, most of them would be completely disgusting. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Actually, that is true. Like, you, the more you're hungry, the more you're, like cope with anything yeah absolutely um i found that particularly in the scottish trip after after iceland as well because you were having a pack i mean in iceland we were packing sort of four to five thousand calories a day and scottish trip was more more ten thousand so iceland trip you did with remy yes and right? that was in our our summer holidays during university right and, and then the, one you did by yourself was was as soon as i graduated university so the plan was I, I kind of came out of university w- with a degree um, mm-hmm. and immediately jumped straight into this year-long expedition, um, partly as a, as a recognition that that might be the last time I'm going to have a year to, to kind of live vagabond like that and, mm. and, and go around. The more the older you get, the more responsibilities you get, I suppose. As a credit um, to you as well, like managing to do all of that crazy stuff and also managing to get a degree like you think at some point you'd just be like, fuck this degree. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just going to go out and like, enjoy my life. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all had that as well. I mean, in, in third yeah. year of university, there's that kind of slump, isn't there? And you'll get to that yeah. point of like, do I really want to do another year of this? Um, but it is worth it. If you, if you kind of pull yeah. through it, you do end up sort of going, yeah, okay, that was worth it. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So after that, um, you did the Scotland trip. Yes. And that's the the one that you won the, the award for. Is that right? Yeah, the I did. Yeah. Adventure yeah. of the Year Award yeah. Um, yeah. for Scotland and the UK. I think it was in 2015, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing as well. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so that, that was a nice little cherry on top, really, for, for a trip that I, I did really sort of selfishly just for myself. But it, it was it, the idea was to, to show that there was a big adventure possible without leaving your home country. Yeah. Um, now for which, is me, a, which is great as well because people are yeah. always searching for what's out there when actually, even for me, when I did that Ullapool trip um, and I did that kayaking day with you and, you know, did the West Coast, I was like, my God, Scotland is beautiful. And yeah, and actually it, it. It, it's been really pleasant the last two years suddenly seeing the whole country with, with staycations discovering what is here. Exactly. Um, and and yeah. you can spend a long time exploring Scotland and, and there's mm-hmm. there's a lot to see in it. So it was a 10-month solo trip around Scotland. Yes, it, it was yeah. supposed to be 10 months. It lasted, in reality, it lasted 12. Um, oh, did and it? That, that was largely due to the winter. So the the plan was for it to be 10 months. Um, rather satisfyingly, it lasted exactly one day shy of a year, which was not was not through planning. That was just the complete You should have just waited in your tent just another day. Just yeah, like, so it was like, exactly... one more, one more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so that, that trip was... A conglomeration of experience that I gained through university. So it was a step up from the Iceland trip that Remy and I had done um, in terms of the kind of length and demands of it. But I also, I very much knew that I, the next expedition I'd wanted to do was, was something based out of a sea kayak. Now, for me, that's partly inspired by the person who, who taught me to paddle, um, which was my parents and, and a chap called Brian Wilson, who is very well known. He wrote a book called Blazing Paddles uh, and a, a subsequent one called Dancing with Waves about 
solo circumnavigating Scotland and sea kayaks in, in the 80s and then later on at Ireland as well. Um, and that for me always appealed. And I liked, initially the idea was to try and kayak around the coast and do all the Munlows via the coast uh, and kind of drag the kayak in land and go up them. And logistically, after sort of starting to plan that, it, I realised that was completely impossible to do realistically. Yeah. Um, Dragging a kayak up a hill. Yeah, and I'm sure someone out there will do it, but yeah. it wasn't for me. And so I broke it up into a kind of two-stage journey. Uh, the start, I, I was going to start at the, the River Esk, which is on the, the west coast, just south of Gretna Green, uh, and the exact border to the country. And I, I would go down the river and then basically follow around Scotland, the coast on my right-hand side, all the way round to Berwick-on-Tweed. Um, so a complete circumnavigation of the mainland. Did you actually know, like, in my head, I, I wouldn't have a clue where I was going if I was in the middle of the sea? There's a lot of planning. Yeah, you, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure you know, the last year of university, you will do anything and everything that is not your dissertation subject. And so yeah, <laughs> plan, planning was totally. pretty, yeah, pretty all-consuming. Um, I planned it very, very detailed, kind of where I would be and where I would go. Uh, and okay. I think I actually stuck to that plan maybe two days. Oh, um, right. Okay. So... It's impossible to, to, when you get a plan on where you're going to go with, with, with kayaks, it's impossible to actually translate that very accurate in, into reality mm. um, because you've got to factor in weather, you've got to factor in tides, and that there's all sorts of conditions that can and slow like, or speed the, up. The weight of your uh, the bag as well, like obviously all your equipment that you're carrying, surely that really weighs down. So it, it slows you down marginally in a sea kayak. The, the fantastic okay. thing about sea kayaks, which is, is partly why I've built my career in them, is is you can fit an awful lot in them and not notice it massively. Yeah, that's true, um, actually. Yeah. So it affects how the kayak will feel and handle, and, and acutely at speed. But you're talking 100 kilos plus. I think I had 120 kilos in the boat at one point. Mm. And... It, it's handleable. Uh, if you think about trying to carry 120 kilos, you just couldn't do it. That's it's like mm. putting two people on your shoulders. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the the planning sort of evolved in the navigation wise. You've got your OS maps, uh, and and you would daily be be sitting in the tent and doing tidal calculations. Um, really, which is really <laughs> it's really way nice. Above my head. It sounds really complicated, but once you kind of get the gist of it. It's not that complicated and mm. you, you kind of get your, the hard thing is finding the information, which nowadays there are, there are Pesda Press books, uh, which are kind of kayaking guidebooks that most of the major headlands in the country are in and, and you can just open the book and the information's there and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and your life becomes completely at rhythm with the tide. Uh, which which moves yeah. moves it circulates through the month. It's weird um, because I remember like the day that I was doing it with you, and like I said before, I hadn't kayaked in years, and it was weird. By the end of the day, you feel like you picked up so much. Yeah, so it's like you must have you know been like at one with the sea by the time that you'd done all of these like days and days of it. Yeah, you do. You, you find you get very connected with the boat and very connected with the sea state and you, you get very observant at what's going on around you and, and what's happening with the weather and what's happening with the tides and, and, and sort of reading the sea at what's happening where. Did you have a time where like you didn't expect the sea to be how it was and it was like mental? And you're a bit panicked or like in over my head here sort of situation. Yeah, n- numerous times. Um, I've, I've noticed that if you're, if you're paddling solo versus paddling with friends, your mindset is very different. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you're solo, your your senses are heightened, and everything seems a little bit more extreme. A little yeah. bit, a little. The wind seems bigger. The waves seem bigger. Um, when they might not be, they just so psychologically they they feel yeah. more demanding. It's like, it's like um, fight or flight, isn't it? Kind of mode. Yeah, and and interestingly, um, the, the first time I really got out of my comfort zone was the, the third day of the trip, where my father joined me for the first two days. And then he left me and all I had to do was paddle out and around the bay. And it was it was pretty calm. But the, the sudden dawning realisation of, of what was ahead to undertake yeah, kind of oh hit God. in the bay. And I remember feeling really, really scared. Did you? Um, you know, actually on the sort of borderline sort of crying and I was sort of really like, wow, this is actually quite big. Um, and then it, it, it sort of came over and then... After after a few minutes, sort of, I decided that I would actually just paddle around the corner and put the camp up, and I'd think about it and, and decide in the morning. Yeah, yeah. And and once you get the momentum going, then it carries on. In terms of being actually caught out in conditions, the one that stands out for me the most was on the north coast of Scotland, which by that point I'm about two and a half months into the trip, so right. very very familiar with the kayak and, and the sea at that point. Um, the north coast itself, you're, you're jumping headlands. Each headland has a strong tide that you've got to, to time correctly, so it's going with you, um, mm-hmm. and you, you cannot go against it. If, if, if you if you get it wrong, you're you're, you're still going with it. And uh, you're normally trying to plan that with with the weather uh, in terms of wind, the swell, uh, the ocean, sort of waves coming in and out, and, and then the tidal flow. And as I came around one of these headlands, the the wind switched uh, off forecast and built very very strong and and when you get wind over tide the waves get much steeper and much much harder to navigate Mm -hmm. um and and there was a good two hours where i was really really fighting just to get the boat around that that headland Um, i mean massive waves i mean sort of four meter plus sort of big big enough to get the whole boat on on the wave but then then how just like in my head i'm like four Um, meters is like the size of my room right now like how how on earth did you get through that? Or did you have to just go under the waves? So like... you're, you're you're riding up and down them, and you're you're you're, you're putting in. Uh, for me, then it was it was a combination of river kayaking experience, where you're you're using brace strokes and, and using your your edging, how you lean the boat. And the the challenge for me halfway around that, that because of the waves breaking over the boat so much, my my deck was leaking at that point as it had been worn over the last two months. Uh, and by the time I arrived into Scrabs the Harbour, the boat boat was almost completely full of water. Um, which they, they do they do still float when yeah. they're full of water, but it, it it feels very very different. Was that scary that moment? Was that like? Yeah, I mean that that was frightening. Um, and you, you sort of think, wow, okay, the sea is really big now. Um, yeah, like the sea is probably uh, one of my biggest fears. It's, it's just, like I just apart from obviously when you have an instructor and everything's fine, like I could never ever do that. Um, it's just so terrifying like I, I actually take my hat off to you because like even just you know saying goodbye to your dad and like that kind of moment but being in that moment when you're by yourself and the waves are four meters high and you've got all your stuff and got no one around you to help you like that is so scary so the yeah the, the funny the funny thing about when that sort of stuff happens which i noticed almost immediately once i come into the shelter is during it you you've got an elevation you've got adrenaline going and you're you're working but you don't really have time to be frightened about it because being right. frightened is not going to help you've you've got to focus and you've got to get through it and push through it and carry on yeah, and, and true, fear, yeah. fear can come later you can get get around the other side and go god that was scary 
Yeah, um, like overwhelmed sort of. Yeah, yeah. And there was a good sort of couple of days afterwards where I, I, I stayed ashore and sort of was really sort of. Like, I'm not sure I want to go out in that again. Mm. Um, and thankfully, a really nice weather window came through, and I thought, yeah, okay, I can manage that, and I'll, I'll give yeah. it a go again. And that momentum rebuilds. Um, but often, I find during those scary moments, it's much more productive rather than sort of panic and fear to sort of take a breath. Um, I think that the military have an acronym for it. They call it STOP, THINK, ORGANIZE, PLAN. So you, you kind of, yeah, sort of the, the STOP acronym. Um, and so you, you're kind of thinking about things and going, right, okay, what can I do to get out of this? How can I best mm. make it go? What can I do ahead of me? Um, and push through that to, to get to the other side. Just want to take a quick break to thank my sponsor, Beautiful Inside and Out, for supporting this podcast. Beautiful Inside and Out are a registered Scottish charitable organisation who help bereaved parents, children, siblings and partners of suicide victims or help anyone who's troubled for any reason. They also offer short and long-term counselling sessions face-to-face or online, as well as group sessions, play therapy, music, drama and art therapy, whilst raising awareness in schools and places of work. This organisation is so close to my heart and has helped me in so many ways, including counselling and constant support after the passing of my dad and through really the darkest times in my life. So please do make sure to give them a like and follow on Facebook and share their page to whoever you might feel is in need of it, whether it be for yourself or someone uh, close to you in your life. Beautiful Inside and Out are such an inspiring and wonderful charity and I couldn't have asked for a better sponsor. Now to continue with the episode. So kind of on the on the topic of like mindset and getting through it, like how did you genuinely get through an experience by yourself without being like, man, I am quite lonely or did you did you just get used to being by yourself or did you just have because I always think like I'm the sort of person that I can have a day by myself and I really enjoy it but then I'm like oh I quite want some company now because I'm overthinking or I'm doing this or I'm doing that I can imagine like that in your experience I'm guessing there's no like signal actually a lot of the time there was um oh was there yeah to be I I, it was still kind of in that era where where I had a phone but it wasn't particularly reliable um it was kind of very early generation iphone so you couldn't navigate on it particularly and you could use it for phone calls but it wasn't particularly useful i did phone my my dad a lot because he he was a sailor uh, and quite often if, if i could I, I would always like to phone him and double check my tidal calculations mm-hmm. um which is a luxury that i had compared to, to folk who've done it in the past um I, I find mentally when you're doing a solo trip the highs are high and the lows are lower. And yeah. it, it averages out about the same. I, I have, through all my expeditions, daily kept a, a log with a, a kind of out of 10 mood rating. All right. Um, and so like 10 out of 10 is like, life is great. Everything is as good as it can be. And a, and a 1 yeah. out of 10 is, this is it, I want to go home now. Um, and it, I, I average normally about a seven and a half, eight out of 10. Oh, and, well, you're a very positive person then. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, uh, you, you find, I found on solo trips, you, you'll get days where you're on threes and fours and you'll get days that are tens. Whereas on a trip with friends, you don't tend to go that low. You mm. tend to get sort of fives and sixes because your, your friends can pull you through it a little bit. So how come um, you were by yourself then? How come you didn't go with a friend? Um, largely, it's hard to, hard to convince a friend to spend a year of their life following around with you. Yeah. Um, and that's actually very true. Yeah, um, <laughs> barely organise like a week away together, let alone a year. Um, and partly by choice, uh, I, I wanted to try and do something on my own um, and, and sort of experience that solo experience. 
Um, and there, so there is brave, a nice, so brave. I think it's more just uh, I'm, I'm introverted a little bit, so I, I yeah. find that that introverted energy comes from being on my own. Well, and, when I say brave, yeah. I don't mean like not enjoying being introverted. I mean like I think just doing something so big and things could go wrong so much then you're screwed almost if something bad happens because you're by yourself. But at least if you have someone else, they can kind of pull you out of it, like you're saying, or like, gee, you up again. Um, so that's what I mean. Like, it's just yeah, it's, everything um, about it. I just think that's amazing. There's def- definitely a higher commitment factor. And I, I do find, yeah, I do find now, having gone back to these these same places, that the if you go with friends with the mindset of, I want to go into big conditions now, um, you can be in those same conditions now that really panic me then and, and be smiling and having fun and sort of going, look at yeah. this, I'll flip over, um, deliberately sort of jumping out your boat and rescuing yourself and that sort of thing. And it's, yeah, definitely. My, mindset really does make a difference. So did um, you have any every, any experiences where you were like at a really bad low? Like I remember you were saying at Ullapool that you had an experience where you couldn't sleep or you had like a paralysis or something like that. Yeah, so that, that came on later. So in... In the Monroe, the Monroes, which are then, I, I kind of finished in the paddling and I, I'd spent, at this point, must have been six months or so in the Monroes. And it was a dead of winter at this point. Um, uh, I'd made, made my way from the south through Ben Lomond and I, I was up, up nearer towards, um, what do you the, the Cairngorm Mountains. Ah, I swapped those over. So when, when I got to oh. the border, um, yeah, when I got to the border of Scotland, I, I swapped the kayak for a mountain bike. Um, right got you and then yeah that 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 kind of went um my my dad joined me like he did at the first two days he came and joined me for the last few days um and uh, my cousin joined as well and for joe that that was his first time ever sea kayaking um like an expedition and we we baptized him well with a a 25k open crossing and then a four six gale (laughs) (laughs) so he survived which was good um but and that that for me actually was one of my first experiences of really leading as well yeah Um, and looking back on it it it's a little horrifying but we made made do um when i finished that joe then took on the reins as, as he had done bike touring before uh, and I, the first time I'd ever fitted my bike with panniers and put pannier bags on. What's that? Sorry. Um, so the, the sort of bags that you strap on the frame of your bike. Um, oh, so you, you can yeah. you can store your stuff on the bikes. And so Joe, we then rode the inland border back to the start and I rode up towards the mountains uh, alone after after that. Now, but yeah, in terms of that, that sort of psychological thing, uh, by the time I got to the Cairngorms, which was, was right in the dead of winter, uh, it turned out to be a really hard winter that year. Um, very, very windy, sort of average winds, 50, 60 mile an hour on the tops. Um, na- navigation in the Kengorms was kind of like being in a ping pong ball with a jet engine. So it's white, <laughs> white everywhere. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you, you live your life by, by getting your map and compass and, and you take bearings. Uh, and, and for me, it's, I prefer counting if I'm on my own. So you, I, I know roughly every 78 steps is a hundred meters if I'm counting my right foot. Um, right. in, the, in the snow that'll go up a little bit it'll go up to sort of 85 or so and so it's kind of like you, you just have to trust yourself with your calculations because you, you're basically blind yeah you, you're completely blind so you're, yeah. you're doing that and, and that was taught through our outdoor education degree um, and the winter environment steps that up another level in, in the uh, in the mist in, in, in summer you can always see land when you get snow in a, in a complete whiteout like that, there is absolutely no delineation between land and sky, and so you are in a completely white bubble, mm-hmm. um, and you're you're navigating using these techniques, 
Um, I did have a GPS with me as well, um, but it was a very simple one, the sort of thing that if you were completely lost, you could turn it on and you could see where you were and you could turn it off again and carry on compass nabbing. Um, but for the majority of it was all, all done sort of by hand on compass. And so your life, you, you would wake up in the morning, you'd have a big breakfast, um, you, you'd get the tent down normally in a gale, um, you would then stash a bag and you'd start counting and pacing all day. And you'd be going to summits and you'd be sort of touching the summit, you wouldn't see very much, and then you'd carry on to the next one. When it got dark, that white room turned into a black room uh, and you carried on uh, until you got tired enough that you wanted to put the tent up and, and sleep. When you're coming in and out of the tops of the mountains, if you're putting the tent up in, the, in these frozen conditions, it is impossible in a gale to collapse it without getting some snow in, inside the tent. And when you come down out of the mountains, that then melts and the tent will get damp. And what I found was that over the course of a week to 10 days or so, that dampness, you kind of get damp and you go back up and your sleeping bag would touch it, but then it would freeze and then it would go down and get damper and you would slowly find all of your stuff would saturate slowly oh. with water uh, and it was impossible to dry it and you would end up going going sort of soggier and soggier and soggier until your, your sleeping bag would start sort of freezing around you and it was oh, miserable God. um at which point at which point normally i would i would kind of hit one of these low lows uh psychologically and try then to seek out a hostel or a cheap bunkhouse to to stay a night and dry out all the kit and then return up into the hills yeah. Um, now, after a while, uh, without realising it, psychologically, that must have started to affect me somehow. Um, yeah, it might also have been lack of contact with people. You, you would meet people in the hostels that would give you a, a short conversation, and, and you, you'd always have those, what I would call sort of shallow conversations, where you're, you're kind of, hi, how are you? What are you doing? Wow, that's impressive. Where are we going next? And then you sort of, you say, how are you doing? What are you doing? And you it never goes very deep and there's not masses of connection there. Um, so very fleeting stuff. Um, and after a while I started to develop these sleep paralysis dreams. And so you would wake up in the tent completely paralyzed and you could see around you like you were awake, but you to, to an outside eye, you still with your eyes closed and you were asleep. Yeah. Um, and then if anyone's ever had sleep paralysis, you, you get this feeling like someone's sitting on your chest and this sort of yeah. mor mortal fear of dread. And you'd see things, you'd see shadows outside the tent and you'd hear footsteps. Oh, and, yeah, and I know. It's horrifying. Um, and it was, there was a good two or three months that that just had every other night you'd wake up and it was horrifying. Was it two months of it? Yeah, wow. it was a long time. Um, and there's no way, because I've, I've had it a couple of times in my um, life and it's because of just being tired I think mm. or like after a big weekend or just something along those lines and um I feel like I remember the first time it happened to me and it was on my back and I was like yeah. just pressing down onto the bed and I was like I remember I was like trying to like scream to somebody to try and wake me up because I couldn't move but my mouth couldn't move either and it's just oh it's a very 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 intense experience but you know even worse if you're soggy and wet and in the middle of a mountain. <laughs> like, yeah, it was, it, it was uh... really interesting. Um, so, yeah, the first time it happened to me, I was completely convinced I'd had a, a paranormal experience. And it, really? Well, I was absolutely convinced of it. Um, largely because, well, I was, I was near the, not near, but sort of in the same region as the Grey, Grey Man of Ben McDewey, which is this, this sort of fam fabled legend. And so I was like, oh, I wonder if that was the Grey Man and have I had a paranormal uh... experience? Um but it, it wasn't, it, uh, and I, I googled kind of what what had happened, and and you ended up 
yeah, the, you get sleep paralysis dreams if you're if you're stressed, mm. um, which the navigation of things and, and the conditions I was in definitely tick that box. Um, if you're tired, which absolutely ticks that box, mm. um, and sleeping on your back can make it worse. Oh, really? And so, yeah, there's kind of a lot of boxes that were ticking, and you go, ah, right, okay. Um, and apparently, and, as well, the more that you think about it, the more it happens. Oh, that's interesting. So, like, yeah. so, because I remember when it happened to me, I was like, I don't want this to happen anymore. Um, and, but the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, oh shit, it's happening again. Like, I yeah. feel myself sinking. And then, so I found that if I put something on in the background, like a movie, it would help me because it would take yeah, my mind off it. Yeah, but because you had nothing to distract yourself with, it probably was a lot worse. So, so. I, I sort of developed a way to get myself out of it. Which oh, did you? Was. It, you'd have it for a while and then you would realize that you're having one of these dreams sort of in, in your sleep you kind of realize and you could you could sort of wake up to sort of oh, okay i'm having one of these but i know what's going on mm. and then i would i would try and imagine being in this sort of happy place of, of my sort of childhood cottage that we used to go to and i would try and imagine counting the steps from the gate to the door and the door up the stairs and then waking myself up in bed Oh, and it, it's like a trigger to get yourself out. Yeah, and it sort of worked. Um, but you, you obviously had to get to that point in the dream where you were lucid enough to go, oh, yeah, okay, that's, yeah. that's what's happening. It's weird how you, how crazy your mind is and how these things can happen. Yeah. But, but yeah. like, as well as that, like, physically, you were putting yourself through hell, really. Like, you were freezing cold and then damp and then freezing cold again. Like, surely you would have got hypothermia at one point. I don't think I ever actually got hypothermia, but I did get really severe frostnip on my toes. Um, oh no! And so the, the the boots I had were really inadequate. They they were leather, and so they weren't winterized. Oh um, god! Now they they were by all means functional for you kind mm. of at, sort of days up the hill, but on a trip that length, the leather being wet every day, the boots were wet every day. I mean, even in the hostels, you could get them to a sort of light dampness. Really? Um, and you they, just deal with that. Yeah, I've, I've, I, I was that kid who filled their wellies full of water, so wet feet really doesn't bother me at all. Strange um, kid. Yeah, <laughs> probably, why, probably why I work in kayaking, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that's never bothered me. But the, again, you'd have this issue with it freezing, and then you've got to try and jam your feet into frozen boots. And then it, oh they, would, they would thaw out over the day, and you, you could kind of manage it. Um, and you get a lot of chill blains, those kind of... The, like, people call them screaming barfies, that kind of pain that you get in your toes and you, you warm them up. Um, oh, ever... is that when you is that when you go from cold to warm and then it's like, oh my god, it's, agony. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, I hate um, that. So that I weirdly sort of enjoy it in a sort of masochistic way. Really? Um, it's like kind of like it, it's a, it's like a, a sign that you've done something really hard. <laughs> yeah. You must be it's, some uh, sort of like adrenaline junkie or something. <laughs> I did something in my last life that I must have done bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and so yeah, from that I, I, I quite badly damaged the nerves on the end of my toes, and uh, oh, they're shit. still they're still slightly numb. I mean that's seven seven and a half years on now, they're still not a hundred percent on the tips wow. of the toes. Um, but never frostbite, and never, I don't think hypothermia. Probably came close a few times, wow. but not, not severe. Did you did you after this? Um, I mean, like obviously you got freezing cold, and I can't think of anything worse. But obviously there must have been a stage where like the the coldness ended, and you were like back into you know 
nice warm weather again and it was a bit more positive <laughs> yeah the last the last sort of month or so when you're kind of coming out of the other end of winter and you can start to see the snows beginning to melt and, and you get mm. sort of longer sunnier days it was um yeah I, i've painted this as a very grim picture there was <laughs> there was there were some really nice days in the middle of it i saw your instagram and i was like oh my god like in my head i didn't think you would have taken photos but you've taken so many beautiful, like, I mean, stunning photos. And I was like, wow. Like, I was actually, like, scrolling through your Instagram for ages. Because <laughs> it's just, I can't believe how good they are. Yeah, and so photography's kind of been an interest. So I, I did carry the camera with me. Um, and Yeah, and it, was, it wasn't it was damaged uh, or anything like that from the cold? Uh, it, or... broke, it broke once, I think, and I got it fixed, um, which is quite a big yeah. chunk out of the budget. But then occasionally that would be a way of kind of getting a bit of money back, as you could sell, like, a an image or an article or something on those days you yeah were, you i mean like off. wow like the photos like, what's um, your instagram again at will copestake at will copestake yeah yeah so anyone listening follow that because yeah. it's just amazing because it was so picturesque and like i can see in that moment like looking at your instagram why you did it because it was just like so beautiful although i did see some photos where you like your tent was in two meters of snow and i was like my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, there were some grim bits, but I mean, again, yeah. that's it's sort of the, the people people in the the outdoor industry call it like type two, three fun. So there's like type type one fun is fun now, fun later. Type two is grim now, but fun when you're back at the yeah. pub. Yeah, yeah. So um, you you feel accomplished, and you feel yeah, proud. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, type three is kind of winter mountaineering. It's grim now, and it's grim in the pub, but still fun technically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so you um, when after this you know whole experience did you like well obviously you got that award for it I'm, I'm, I take it that you you like spoke about it and people caught on to it or what, what did you raise money or what what did you do for people to like catch on to the fact you were doing this yeah so I, I through the trip had sort of blogged it for a while so I blogged right, I blogged okay. a lot of the kayaking stuff and then the Munros that kind of lapsed a little bit um, there was a, a a phone app called Punked which was it was kind of an early sort of geo-tracking thing that you could take a video diary and it would click it on a map. All right. And, and so I've still got that. It's just still online. Um, and you can find this sort of entire map of my journey and you can click all the places and there's a little video diary all the way around it. Which is, oh, I've never heard great. of that. That's brilliant. Um, so, yeah, there's a few people kind of followed that, I suppose. And then um, that's how it kind of caught on. Yeah, and I, I wrote a few articles for, for magazines like TGO and that sort of thing and, and just sort of wrote a little bit about it because uh, for me it had been a pretty life-changing experience. Well, you said to um, me that you've written an actual book. I have, yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the book is now finished. It needs editing because it is the length of War and Peace. <laughs> um, so that, my, my now jo- my now my job is to is to slash that by about a third because um, I've written right. everything um, and now it's to kind of cherry pick out the and did you write bits. that from memory or did you write that on your trip? Um, so written written from memory but using the the sort of di- diary entries and video diary entries to, to oh, kind of really sort of supplement wow. that, which has been really useful. Um, I'm going to read that. Like, I'm so yeah, excited. But so, at some point, it will be published. Point, yeah. um, any publishers out there, give me a shout. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what are you um, going to call it again? I would like to call it Close to Home. Close to Home, yes. Because um, the, the idea was the whole thing was Close to Home. But, I mean, uh, publishers have a lot of say on that sort of stuff. But the trip itself, I called, I called it Macair to Monroe, which Macair is like the really famous coastal grasslands you get. Right. And Mon- Monroe has been the mountains. Um, however, no one really knows what Macair is, and no one knows what Monroe is. So, in yeah, terms of a book the, name, it's probably not so good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Normally, no, that sounds yeah. more like a tourist guide. Yeah, you, you spend more time explaining to people what what it is than actually. <laughs> yeah. um, 
So when you were like having those moments where, you know, the weather was too bad to do anything, you just had to like wait, essentially. What did you do in those times? Did you just sit in your tent? Basically, yeah. Um, did you? Uh, yeah, in the sea kayaking, a lot of the time you spend time in tents. Um, if you had the opportunity to get down to a hostel or something, I would normally go and do a night in a hostel somewhere and, and catch up on, on things and, and sort of go a bit more into the real life again. And How did you feel like after this whole trip was done, after the year that you've had, and you're like, I, I would imagine it would be quite hard to relate to people when you came back because your last year has just been mental. Yeah, and then it's, you go back and someone's talking about like TikTok or something. You're like, that's what is going on it's here. It's got much easier explaining this now that we've all had a lockdown. Yes, that's yeah, very true. Yeah, it, It's that exact same feeling. So you, it's like leaving high school and, and things like that. So you, you suddenly routine changes really quickly. Um, and for me, I, I found for a long time I was quite nervous being around big crowds of people. So you'd have to sort of yeah. try and yeah try and look people in the eye and all that sort of thing. In terms of what you actually got up to, do you not find life quite mundane when you come back? Um, no, I think I, I was I was lucky enough that the Iceland trip that we'd done, Remy and I had had gone from that and then done nothing because uh, we, we we went back to a semester where we only had one subject in the semester, so there was very little going on. Mm-hmm. And routine change is is fine, but routine change to nothing generally makes people depressed. And it's yeah, known, it, it's known yeah. yeah, it's known a lot as expedition blues. Um, now a lot of people probably found that in lockdown, uh, I suspect. Um, yeah. And so uh, we'd learnt from that because we we did get really depressed at the end of that trip. Um, and learned from that and knowing forward on that with the Scotland trip, I'd managed to set myself up that as soon as I came out of that trip, I hit the ground running and, and had stuff planned. And, and more importantly for me, because I, I was completely broke, it was was work um, to, to do. Yeah. Did you, and is um, that when you set up your kayak company? No, that, that came quite a long time later. Um, okay. I, I worked freelance for, for quite a long time um, and got picked up by a company doing coast to coast walks across England. All right. Um, and then doing doing sort of freelance guiding up and down Ben Nevis and, and lots of Duke of Edinburgh trips and, and your kind of standard freelance work that you can do. Wow. Um, what, what do you think was the most difficult Monroe or mountain that you've ever climbed? I, I Technically, it, it would be the inaccessible pinnacle because it's the only one that's a rock climb. Um, and, oh, yeah. I hate rocks. Um, <laughs> uh, for, but for me, when I did that, it was a beautiful sunny day. I was there with loads of mates and it was really fun. So that, that for me was actually a fairly easy hill. All right. Okay. Um, I think in in reality it would have been the Cairngorms solely for that navigational challenge that we we had. But you um, couldn't see anything. Yeah, and so the the difficulty it's not for me the technical difficulty that was challenging. It was the the kind of mental and and sort of technical navigational difficulty. Well, you know how also in lockdown you were just mentioned there. Did you find this just popped up into my head just now? Did you find that, like, you know how it was, like, restrictions of five miles? Did you find that pretty limiting? Because obviously you're outdoors and you travel all the time. Um, I have no grounds to complain because I live in Ullapool and it True, uh, the yeah. sea is on my beach, the mountains are behind. Even walking lowland within five miles, there was a lot to do. That said, when lockdown first happened, I, I was working my fourth season in Patagonia with my partner. And I, I just finished um, that working season and had lined up a 45-day-long expedition to kayak around Cape Horn. And so I, I had geared myself up for this mega adventure. 
and all of a sudden was self-isolating in the house for two weeks and then not allowed to go on the water. Um, the first lockdown, oh. all, all water sports were discouraged. Uh, and as a oh, company, yeah, I didn't know a, that. No, yeah, so they, they tried to, to stop people going out in the water with the idea it would restrict impact on, on other emergency services. There's absolutely nothing in Lockbroom that is going to take me out of a sea kayak. And, and if I do, there's nothing that I can, I can envisage that is going to cause me serious harm. Mm. That said, the... If one person goes out, other people come out and they might not yeah. have the same same experience breadth. And as a business, we, we felt uh, that it was it was our responsibility to kind of set an example of that. So we weren't on the water. But what I did, did you do I, with your time? I, I did loads of woodwork. Yeah, I oh, um, right. I got really into restoring tools and, and just kind of doing doing childhood projects. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, I got really into that. Um, Man of many talents. Wow, it's something to do when you're not outside, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and it, I did go through the five stages of grief, I think, when it came to not being on the water, but eventually yeah. sort of accepted it and, and was like, yeah, okay. Um, and there's loads you can do. You can always, always keep yourself busy. Ah, oh, that was it's so interesting. So like, I feel like I've got probably a million more things to ask you, but we could be talking all day long. But I mean, it's just so amazing that you've taken what you enjoy and making it so big. And obviously, like, I'm going to be looking out for all the stuff you're going to be doing in the future, because I can imagine you probably want to do bigger and bigger trips each time. Yeah, um, I don't think I'll ever do another year long one. Um, uh, yes, I've, I've definitely a long got, time. Yeah, I've definitely got some big trips in the pipeline, um, which, yeah, kind of delayed via COVID, but hopefully we'll come back now. Yeah, I think yeah. I think when you get the the bug for it, it's hard to it's hard to stop, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Are you going to continue doing your um, kayaking for foreseeable? Because that's a, a great thing if you're ever in Ullapool, anybody listening to go on that kayaking trip. Yeah, so the, the business we run, Kayak Summer Wells, is, is going to carry on for sure. Um, mm. we're, we're, we're basically open all summer and most of the winter these days. Um, and, and yeah, that's definitely kind of my my main occupation now in the summer. It was so much fun. Like I didn't realise how much I would enjoy it. It was really chilled as well. It was only like two other couples and it just felt like it was an intimate little day. And it's weird how things happen where you, you go on something and then you meet people and then here we are doing a podcast together because, you it's know. It's a small world, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it is, it's, isn't it's it? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and telling me all about your many experiences and your ups and downs and everything. It's been great to talk to you. Amazing. Look forward to seeing you on the water or elsewhere in the world guys thanks for having me <laughs> thank you um, thank you so so much to will for taking the time to talk to me and sharing his story so well i hope you enjoyed the podcast episode as much as i did making it and honestly i just feel so inspired after speaking to people like will just thoroughly enjoying hearing how different people live their lives and where people find their own enjoyments i think getting outdoors is one of the key things that we all need to do more as we try to break the shackles of being addicted to our phones and spending countless hours lying on the sofa and not engaging enough in the beautiful world that we live in I know that I'm definitely guilty of that anyway. And if you like this podcast episode, please give me a rating and a review on your podcast streaming service that you're using and share this episode to whoever you feel might like it. Thank you so much for staying till now. I appreciate your time and I'll see you in the next episode.